Please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and read again with me the final verse of that chapter, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world received up into glory. In this chapter of God's Word, we consider God's order for the leadership of the church. As I mentioned last Lord's Day, elders and deacons and their qualifications are the subject of most of this chapter. And we have looked at a description of the church itself in verse 15. It is called the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And of course there's emphasis here on the importance of being faithful to the assembly of the saints, the church, the local church being the pillar, the support or the stay of the truth. It is the job of the church to hold up the truth to defend the truth, to spread the truth. Now these words of chapter 3 conclude with a great majestic statement of doctrine. In verse 16, you have what is one of the most doctrinal statements in the New Testament. The church is called to preach and defend the truth of God, but what is that truth? Well, it is the truth that is emphasized in this text. The central truth to which the church of Jesus Christ is called to bear witness is that of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be men and women of one message. It's behind me on the wall of our church, at least part of that text, where Paul wrote, We preach Christ crucified. We preach the person and the work of Christ. Now this verse, 1 Timothy 3.16, is a simple statement and yet it is a profound statement of the doctrine of Christ. And you'll notice how it begins. Great is the mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness. In the New Testament, a mystery has reference to a truth that was previously hidden, but which, when it is revealed, is understood by the believer. Let me say that again. A mystery refers to a truth previously hidden, which, when it is revealed, is understood by the Christian believer. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27, the Apostle Paul wrote the following. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice that the mystery is revealed to be 
Christ. And what is said of Christ here is indeed a great mystery. But yet it has been manifested unto us who believe. And we are actually given six great statements of fact concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes when you mention to a congregation that you have six points, there's great consternation that descends upon people because they think, wow, this is going to be a long one tonight. Well, not necessarily, but all six of these are very simply stated in the text. The first of those great statements of fact concerning the Lord Jesus Christ is that which has to do with his incarnation. His incarnation. God was manifest in the flesh. This is a fact. And it is the fact of the incarnation of the Son of God. The incarnation referring to God appearing in flesh. And these are words we've found in our Bibles before. In John chapter 1 indeed. You turn there and you see in John chapter 1 verse 1 that it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But when you come down to verse 14 of that chapter, he says, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is a word we could translate tabernacled. It is a reference to someone who lives in a tent. The word was made flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And isn't it interesting when Paul talked about the human body in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he talked about this body of ours as being a tabernacle in which we dwell. It's like a tent that we fold up and roll up and put away. This is our flesh. Now if you compare the words of Hebrews chapter 10, once again it is referring to Christ there. And in verse 5, he puts it this way, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, that of course is what happened at the incarnation, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. A body. Flesh. And as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. The question is, how did the second person of the eternal trinity, the eternal word, come to dwell in a body? Well, it happened by the miracle incarnation. So here you have, implicit in the words of Paul, in 1 Timothy 3.16, the doctrine of the virgin birth. God was manifest in the flesh. When did that happen? It happened at the incarnation. It happened at the virgin conception and birth of Christ. And we read of that clearly in two New Testament portions. Quite often around the Christmas season we deal with these portions. But we can deal with it at any time of the year. And Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1 are the portions that I have in mind. Matthew chapter 1 gives us a whole series of names of men who were born to other men. It begins 
in verse 2 that Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. They were the sons of these men. And you have all these listed right down to the end of verse 17 and then in verse 18 it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Here's a different birth. Here's a new departure. Here's a different subject altogether. Here's someone who didn't appear by natural human generation. And he explains, When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, and that was a strong form of engagement, before they came together, that's before there were any conjugal relations, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now, friends, that is a human impossibility. But as the angel said to Mary in Luke's Gospel, for with God all things are possible. With God nothing shall be impossible. And so it was possible for Christ to be conceived in the womb of the Virgin without any human involvement at all. And the story is given here. Joseph, when he heard about this, his reaction was a natural one. He was minded to put her away privily. He was going to go through divorce proceedings, which is what you had to do if you were espoused to someone, and he was going to put her away privately without too much fuss. Because it was a disgrace. It was a disgrace for a girl to be expecting a child and not to be married. That's how Joseph looked at it. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And the explanation is given in the following verses, culminating in verse 25, that he knew her not, that means in a carnal fashion, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Here's the incarnation. You can read then what Luke says about it in his Gospel. And he gives that account in Luke chapter 1 from verse 31. Where the angel said to Mary, verse 30, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favour with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, look at this, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? How am I going to have a baby without human involvement? That can't happen. And the angel answered and said unto her, Luke chapter 1 verse 35, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Clear teaching on the Incarnation. What happened at the Incarnation? Did God turn into a human? No. God was not humanized. The Lord Jesus Christ is not Humanity deified either. What happened at the Incarnation was that deity 
took into union with itself our humanity without sin. Great miracle. God was manifest in the flesh so that he became the God-man Christ Jesus. There's a wonderful statement in Colossians. It is one of the most stupendous of statements in all of the Bible. It's amazing in its import. And it simply says this. Colossians 2 verse 9. For in him, Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. How the fullness of the Godhead could dwell in a babe a span long. But this is the teaching of Scripture. In our shorter catechism, question 21, that asks, Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? And the answer is given that the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continueth to be both God and man in two distinct natures and yet one person forever. What a tremendous definition that is. And the incarnation, therefore, leads us to the cross. Because as a man, he died for men. As a man, he died for sinners. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19 puts it very well. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. How is it that Christ was able to die for our sins? Because as God, he became man. He took mankind's nature without sin into union with his deity. And as a man, he died for men. Or as Peter the Apostle put it, he was put to death in the flesh. So God was manifest in the flesh. Tremendous doctrine of the incarnation but as well as his incarnation Paul writes here to Timothy about his vindication look at the term that he uses in this second great statement God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit justified in the spirit what does that mean he was made flesh and yet he was the son of God And Christ was proved to be and vindicated as deity. As man, he died for our sins. But as God, he alone could take away our sins. In his earthly ministry, the Lord's humanity was clearly seen. You think of those times when the Lord was hungry. When he was thirsty. When he sat down on the well. And talked to the woman there in John chapter 4. And he was thirsty. There were times when the Lord rested. He fell asleep in the boat with the disciples. The humanity of the Lord is unquestioned. It's clearly seen. He's bone of our bone. He's flesh of our flesh. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knew what it was to suffer physical infirmity. His humanity was clearly seen and his divinity was usually hidden. 
But there were those occasions, those times when, if you like, flashes of his deity were seen. On the Mount of Transfiguration, those, those that were there witnessed something really amazing. When the Lord's garments became white as the light, he was, to use the word, transfigured before them. That was, if you like, something out of the ordinary. That didn't happen to the Lord all the time. Oh, I know the Church of Rome and its holy pictures usually has a thing that looks like a dinner plate behind the Lord's head. But you just ignore that nonsense. They do that for the so-called saints as well. But the Lord didn't go around with a, a halo around the top of his head or at the back of his head. There was nothing to indicate to people who met him every day that he was anything other than a Galilean peasant. That's how they viewed him. That's how they thought of him. But in John chapter 18 verse 6, we see something as well as the transfiguration that was, if you like, an indicator of his deity. When they came to arrest the Lord in John chapter 18, the Bible shows us that when they came to ask him who he was, he actually started asking them in verse 4, Whom seek ye? Who are you looking for? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Now, you will know, if you've listened to me often enough, that any word that's in italics in the authorized version is not in the original. It's added by the translators to help with the flow of the sentence. So here you see the Lord saying unto them, I am. That's how it can read. I am. And it says in verse 6, As soon then as he had said unto them, I am. And you see the word he again is in italics. So you drop that out. Just think about the words as they are. As soon as he said unto them, I am. They went backward and fell to the ground. And then he asked them again, Whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Again, he is in italics. I told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Now can you tell me when the Lord said, I am, why they fell backward and fell to the ground? Why did that happen? It happened because the Lord was at that moment displaying to them who he was. I am is a statement of deity. I am that I am is the great statement that the Lord made to Moses, identifying himself, the covenant God, the Lord, Jehovah, I am. That's what Jesus was telling them. That's why they fell backward to the ground. There's no other explanation for it. Why would they fall backwards and fall to the ground just by looking at him? Because at that moment, he displayed just a little bit of his glory. And of course, by his words, and by his works, his miracles, etc., he proved himself to be very God of very God manifest in flesh. He was justified in the Spirit. Again, the book of Romans speaks to this. In Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says, 
that the gospel is concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. There's the humanity. And declared to be the Son of God with power. There's the deity. According to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And you will also see this language of the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18. He says something really significant here. 1 Peter 3 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. He's proved to be very God of very God, manifest in flesh. There's his vindication. And the Lord was justified in the Spirit, particularly when he rose from the dead, declared to be who he said he was. His work was proven to have been accepted of God because he did not remain among the dead. But there's a third thing, and that is his manifestation. His manifestation, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels. Now, this brings in the whole gamut of our Lord's experience when he was upon the earth from his birth until the time of his ascension up into heaven angels were involved with our Lord Jesus Christ the ministry of angels is an amazing study we know that angels were there at his birth in Luke chapter 2 another portion that we often look at toward the end of December when we're preaching on sermons related to the incarnation The shepherds are abiding in the field. The angel of the Lord comes upon them. The glory of the Lord shines round about them. They're afraid. The angel says to them, listen, Luke chapter 2 verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That message comes from the angel of the Lord. And with that angel, there was a multitude of angels. They're called the heavenly host. You read that in Luke chapter 2, verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That would have been an unforgettable experience for those shepherds. Looking up into the sky and seeing the sky filled with angels who are announcing the birth of the Son of God. But of course angels were involved at the time of the Lord's temptation. In Matthew chapter 4 you see the devil coming and tempting the Lord in several ways. The Lord answering him from the scriptures. And then the Bible says... In Matthew 4 verse 11, Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. I don't know how many angels. I don't know if there were two or two hundred. I don't know. But there were angels that came to minister to the Savior at that time. 
Again, this was the case in Gethsemane. There's the Lord all alone suffering. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It's my contention and that of many other Bible preachers and commentators that the Lord almost died in the garden. This was a near-death experience. But Luke 22:43 says, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. For that awful experience that he was about to go through, the agony, when he prayed more earnestly, there was an angel there to strengthen him. I don't know how he did that. In what way the angel ministered to the Lord, but he did. He was seen of angels. We just got through talking about the resurrection of Christ in our series on the book of Mark. And we learned from John chapter 20, as well as those other Gospels, about the presence of angels at the sepulchre. John 20, from verse 11, the Bible says, But Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head, and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. In one of the other Gospels, they're referred to as young men, but they're identified here as angels. Angels present at his birth. Angels present at his temptation. Angels present in Gethsemane. Angels present at his resurrection. And then he's about to ascend up into glory. In the book of Acts chapter 1, those disciples are gathered there with the Lord on the Mount Olivet. The Bible tells us in verse 9 that when the Lord had spoken these things, while they beheld, that's the disciples that were there, the eleven of them now, He was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I believe that these are the same two angels that were in the sepulcher. I have no reason to believe otherwise. But there they were, two men standing by them in white apparel. But they weren't men, they were angels. Because they said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So there you have it again. Angels at the ascension of Christ. And what's going to happen when Jesus comes again? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is written for our comfort. The Bible tells us what is going to happen. When the Lord comes, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now I know it just mentions there the voice of the archangel. But if you go to the little epistle of Jude, just before the book of Revelation, Jude gives us another little bit of information. 
Because he tells us that the Lord Jesus is going to come. This is a prophecy that was given in the Old Testament by Enoch. Jude chapter 1 verse 14. And Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these saying, Behold the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. The word saints is holy ones. It's referring to the angels. In the book of Job it says he putteth no trust in his saints. It's not talking about believers. It's talking about angels. So you have angels at every point in our Lord's experience. That's his manifestation. He's seen of angels. But then what about the next point? His revelation. Preached unto the Gentiles. That's what's happening tonight. That's what's happening tonight. Christ is preached unto the Gentiles. You could say unto the nations. This is a reference to gospel ministry. You know, men are most privileged beings. Because they have the privilege of preaching the gospel. The gospel of Christ is not preached generally by angels. There are one or two exceptions in the scripture. But we can certainly say that the gospel of Christ is not preached to angels. The gospel wasn't preached to the angels. Why? Because the angels never needed to be saved. Oh, there's one third of the angels of heaven that fell from their first estate. They're apostate angels. They've gone to hell. They will be there forever. There's no salvation for them. But neither was there any salvation provided for the elect angels in heaven. Jesus didn't die for them. You know, people get all hot and bothered about people limiting the atonement. Can I tell you that the atonement is already limited to mankind? Christ didn't die for any angels. Christ didn't die for the devil. Although there are some who might want you to believe that he did. But Christ didn't die for Lucifer. There is a limitation to the atonement. And Christ shed his blood for those that he intended to save. But with that said, the gospel hasn't been preached to angels because angels don't need to be saved. And there's not an angel in heaven who will ever be able to stand up in the hosts of the redeemed and say, I remember when I was lost and Jesus found me. There's a song that we sing that the angels never sang. It's the song of the redeemed. And no wonder the angels are interested in this. As Peter said, which things the angels desire to look into. The, the word, as I've often explained, means they crane their necks. If I could use this term reverently, the angels rubberneck to see this matter of salvation. They're interested in it. Because they know nothing about what it means to be redeemed. They don't know what it means to be lifted from the depths. Such as we do as sinners. The gospel is not preached to angels, but unto men. How privileged we are. Preached unto the Gentiles. I'm so thankful that that's in the Bible. 
the great commission has been carried out. You know, the Bible talks initially of the missionary journeys of Paul, and you can trace it in those maps in your Bible. You can look at the various journeys that Paul took and initially how restricted the spread of the gospel was, and then the gospel came to Europe. And you see how the gospel spread into Italy and into Spain. You read about that in the book of Romans. You see how Paul preached and brought the gospel to Greece, to Athens. And the European countries were evangelized. And I believe that the gospel spread further west, right into what is now the United Kingdom, to the British Isles. And there's evidence everywhere, even in the old historic artifacts and buildings, of men who believed the Bible, who went out as missionaries to preach the gospel at the same time or just shortly after the Apostle Paul in those parts of the world. The Roman Catholic Church has claimed a lot of these people. You see the church, churches, one after another, called after so-called Saint Patrick, Patrick of Ireland, the patron saint. Patrick was not a Romanist by any stretch of the imagination. He didn't believe the doctrines of the Church of Rome. If you read Patrick's letters, you'll find that there's anything but popery taught in them. He was not an emissary of the Church of Rome. He didn't preach and teach the Mass and false doctrines. He preached the Gospel. And there's another man by the name of Columbus. Not Columbus that came here, but Columba. Not Columbus, Columba. They call him Saint Columba. He went to the islands just west of Scotland, to the outer Hebrides. There's a place you can, you can visit today. It's a center of popery, an ecumenical religion called Iona. On the island of Iona, Columbus set up not what was a Roman Catholic monastery, but a place where men studied the Bible and they went out as missionaries to preach on the mainland of Scotland and brought the truth to the people. Church of Rome doesn't tell you that. They tell you that Columba was an emissary of the Pope and that he converted Scotland to Catholicism. He did nothing of the kind. The gospel was preached unto the Gentiles and I'm ever so thankful that my part of the world from which I come was so heavily evangelized that it sent more missionaries per capita to the rest of the world than any other country at one time, including those that came to these shores. The gospel spread to this great country. And you think of the history of America. It's a history of the triumph of the gospel. And I'm not just talking about from 1776. I'm talking about way before that. Long before that. When people came who had been persecuted back in the old country and brought their religion with them to New England and evangelized the Indians and evangelized the people that were here and set up churches. Men like George Whitfield and John Wesley in later times preached before this ever was a republic. And all the history of this nation has been a blessed history. Because the gospel has been preached unto the Gentiles. 
We're a privileged people. The Great Commission has been carried out. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. There are men and women who took that word seriously and left their homes and their families and their loved ones and went to the furthest ends of the earth to bring the gospel. When I was a young child in Sunday school, there was a retired missionary in our church called Emma Munn. Emma used to refer to me as her little missionary. I think I was about six years old at the time. Emma used to tell us about how that she left Northern Ireland on a boat and ended up in one of the African countries and she was a source of tremendous curiosity because she was the first white woman that they'd ever seen. They had never seen anybody who was not the same color as themselves. Now why did she do that? Well, she did that because she believed that the gospel should be preached to the Gentiles. She had a relationship where she was engaged to be married because the man that she was engaged to would not agree to go to the mission field. She broke off that engagement. She often used to say to the young people in our youth fellowship, people say to me, oh, you could have been married, you could have had a family and have all children and family of your own. She said, I did God's will and God gave me thousands of children. Preached unto the Gentiles. And I would certainly urge you to read the biographies, the biographies of Christian missionaries. People like William Carey, C.T. Studd. Missionaries like Amy Carmichael. Missionaries like Mary Slessor of Africa. And we could go on and on. The gospel has been preached to the Gentiles. And what a wonderful gospel it is that we preach. We preach Christ crucified. That's the message that's to be preached unto the nations. And you tonight and I are saved because somebody preached the gospel to us. Christ has been preached. Christ is preached. Let us continue to preach unto others. And obviously then that preaching achieves results. There's number five. There's the Lord and his reconciliation. It says that he not only is preached unto the Gentiles, but believed on in the world. Believed on in the world. Notice, he's not believed on by the world, but he's believed on in the world. All who hear are not saved. That's a sad reality. But there were, and there are, and there will be many in the world who will believe to the saving of the soul. And that's why we keep preaching. The Bible tells us in the Psalm 126, verse 5, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, Bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. We learn from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, that we are to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Oh, I wish that far more people would be saved than are. I wish that when we preach, people would come to the Lord in their droves. God is able to do that. 
But I'm thankful when even one soul comes to the Lord. I say this not for my own glory at all. God knows my heart. But sometimes in preaching the word it can be really discouraging because you feel like nothing happens. And you'll be the same when you witness for the Lord and you feel like nothing ever happens. But don't believe that. Don't believe that. God is using you. I'm just an instrument. So are you. But isn't it good to know that God uses us? Isn't it good to know that it's not a waste of time to pray and to preach and to serve the Lord? Because there will be some that I might by all means save some. That's what Paul said. Men and women are saved by faith in Christ. He is believed on in the world as his person and work is exalted. Despite the unbelief and the apathy, and the indifference of many people, and the careless attitude to the gospel, and those that couldn't care less about the message that you preach, yet in all, some are given faith, and some do rest upon the finished work of Christ for salvation. And I'm thankful for that. He's believed on in the world. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And here is something on the surface of this text that we must grasp hold of. This reconciliation that's spoken of here, he's believed on in the world. That's exactly where it is. It's in the world. It's not after life is over. This has to be emphasized. People can only come savingly to Christ in the world. In the world to come, it's too late. Christ is believed on in the world. Be in time. Be in time. While the voice of Jesus calls you, be in time. If in sin you longer wait, you may find no open gate, and the cry be just too late. Be in time. There's no turning to the Lord after death. There's no second chance. There's no probation. It's too late. When that door closes and you close your eyes in death. So, Christ is believed on in the world. And thank God those that believe are saved. And there's one final thought. And the final thought is his glorification. Christ is spoken of here. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels. Preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. There's his glorification. He ascended into heaven. We read about it already in Acts chapter 1. He was taken up from them into heaven. Mark 16 verse 19 says the same thing. That he went up and has set on the right hand of God in heaven. He's glorified now in heaven. He's exalted as a prince and a saviour. But he's not just sitting there in glory. In heaven he is actively engaged on the behalf of his people. We think of the fact that he's received up into glory. And that should encourage us because in glory he's doing something. Hebrews 9 verse 24. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands which are the figures of the true. But into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. That's who he's there for. He's there for us. 
There's a man in the glory who pleads our cause before the Father's face. And what a joy it is for us to think about that. Our Lord Jesus Christ right now is interceding for us. In glory he's praying for me. And one day, maybe soon, one day he will come again in power and in great glory. And then shall we appear with him in glory. We'll share his glory. We'll sit down with him in his Father's throne. But until that time, as Hebrews 4.14 tells us, saying we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Let us live for him. Let us preach him in the world. Let us pray to the Lord that there will be those who will believe on him in the world. And let's look forward to that day, perhaps soon when we will join him in the glory. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts.